Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture comes from the book of Acts, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from his sight, hid him from their sight. They were, sudden, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go up into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Buenos días. La lectura esta mañana viene del libro de Hechos, capítulo 1, versículos 6 al 13. Entonces los que estaban reunidos con él le preguntaron, Señor, ¿es ahora cuando vas a restablecer el reino a Israel? No les toca a ustedes conocer la hora ni el momento determinados por la autoridad misma del Padre, les contestó Jesús. Pero cuando venga el Espíritu Santo sobre ustedes, recibirán poder y serán mis testigos tanto en Jerusalén como en toda Judea y Samaria y hasta los fines, confines de la tierra. Habiendo dicho esto, mientras ellos lo miraban, fue llevado a las alturas hasta que una nube lo ocultó de su vista. Ellos se quedaron mirando fijamente al cielo mientras él se alejaba. De repente se les acercaron dos hombres vestidos de blanco que les dijeron, «Galileos, ¿qué hacen aquí mirando al cielo?» Este mismo Jesús, que ha sido llevado de entre ustedes al cielo, vendrá otra vez, de la misma manera que lo han visto irse. Entonces regresaron a Jerusalén desde el monte llamado de los Olivos, situado aproximadamente a un kilómetro de la ciudad. Cuando llegaron, subieron al lugar donde se alojaban. Estaban ahí Pedro, Juan, Jacobo, Andrés, Felipe, Tomás, Bartolomé, Mateo, Jacobo, el hijo de Alfeo, Simón, el hijo de Celote, y Judas, hijo de Jacobo. Palabra del Señor. Thank you, Wendy and Oscar. And I, I was appreciating earlier uh, fire in Pastor Yancey's heart there preaching as he was about these life groups. He does such a good job of leading that ministry, uh, as, as he mentioned, a, a backbone of our church community. And uh, grateful for his leadership and grateful for all you who are participating in that. So uh, thank you and jump on in, folks, uh, again. But let's turn our attention to God's word uh, for the second sermon of the morning. Um, a joy, 
a joy to hear from the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful to be gathered here together. And we ask that you would come now and make your word clear to our hearts. And more than that, we lift up our response to you, uh, that we would be um, open-hearted, open-minded, and receptive uh, to what you have to say to each of us. And we long for this together. We long for this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This weekend, and yesterday in particular, was a, a unique weekend, as you know, um, as our nation uh, remembered the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 tragedy uh, attack, um, which struck me, I don't know about you, as particularly heavy, um, maybe because it's the 20th anniversary, a special time to pause and reflect, uh, maybe because of the ongoing pandemic, uh, maybe because of just the cumulative wear and tear that so many of us have endured. But one thing that struck me as I myself considered uh, the grief of our nation and the continuing challenges that we face, and it is this, how desperately we are in need of healthy churches. And I don't mean that in a simplistic sense, as though churches by themselves are the answer to national security concerns. But I do mean that if we want to be a healthy nation, if we want to be a healthy peoplehood, we need healthy churches. You and I need that. Our nation needs this, perhaps more now than ever. And as we talk at this time of the year about what it means to be Grace Meridian Hill, the backdrop to that question, of course, is that question. How can we be healthy? How can we be a church that God has called us to according to his scriptures? And so over the next couple of weeks, we're posing this question. Why does Grace Meridian Hill exist? What's our mission? And we're looking at our mission statement and considering different components, different biblical foundations that guide who we are as a church community who we, by God's grace, endeavor to be and to become. And here's our mission statement. You'll find it printed in the slide above, as well as in the liturgies before you at home. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is intentionally spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams, Morgan, Petworth, and beyond. This is what we long to be and do and become, and today we're giving particular focus to this one component of that mission statement, and that is our desire, our prayer, that we be a neighborhood-centered community. What does that mean, being a neighborhood church? Being a neighborhood community means that we're striving to be a community of good neighbors, in both our words and our actions, as we ourselves continually discover and rediscover how God has been a true neighbor to us in Christ, that we long to be a people, by God's grace, who are learning to be near dwellers. That's what neighbor means more literally, near dwellers, living side by side, learning to love, 
learning to be in community. This means that we want to be a church that's in the neighborhood, of the neighborhood, and for the neighborhood. In the neighborhood, which means not only physically located here in this particular part of the city, but also that means being emotionally and relationally present to one another as neighbors. It means devoting our, our time, our energy, our, our talents, our finances, our, our hearts, our prayers to this particular context, this particular set of neighborhoods, and not only corporately as a church, but also individually as residents in this city. We long to be of the neighborhood, which means belonging to these neighborhoods, taking personal ownership of their needs, living and serving alongside our other neighbors as partners, and striving over time to become a reflection of the rich mix of people represented in this part of the city. We long to be a church for the neighborhood as well, which means laboring sacrificially with deeds of compassion and justice and love, seeking the well-being of, of all of our neighbors, but especially those who are struggling with vulnerability, uh, people with material needs. Uh, we long to love all of our neighbors, but we also want to follow the heart of God to care for and to walk with the most vulnerable among us, and we want to be generous servants of our neighbors, whether or not they agree with all of our beliefs as Christians. This part of our vision means that we are zealous to see people in our church community live here, to be nearby one another, which of course doesn't mean that we will ever exclude people that don't live here from being a part of our community, our local church family. In fact, over the years, some of our most vital, committed members have not necessarily lived here, but have been missionaries to these neighborhoods and have been in deep partnership and family together. Uh, our point is not to communicate that these neighborhoods are the perfect place, nor do we ever want to cultivate a kind of self-righteousness about these particular zip codes, which would be destructive to neighborhood community, but rather we simply want to say, while we are together, as we are here, let's serve and love and live by faith with focus and intentionality, seeking depth in community rather than simply breath. We long to be together. Some of you might feel called to jump on in, maybe even to move in as some of you have done, but certainly to commit yourselves to serving together while we are together. Today we're looking at a passage that might be familiar to you from Acts chapter 1 just to draw out a few themes that I think give some, some weight and foundation to this part of our church's vision, a neighborhood community. And this comes from the story written by Dr. Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. And now the book of Acts explicates and unfolds for us the story of Jesus' continuing work through his apostles in the building of his church in the Mediterranean region in the first century. 
These verses show the very final moments of Jesus' time with his disciples after his death, after his resurrection, after he returns and instructs them. Now here he is getting ready for his ascension when he returns, yes, bodily to heaven to sort of take his throne, reign over the world through his people, yet taking his seat at his throne. And here we start with a, an exchange between Jesus and his disciples, where we witness that they apparently have a vision of God's kingdom that seems maybe too small. They, they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? thinking that God will continue to work only through one nation, through one ethnic group, forgetting that Jesus had already indicated that God was going to explode and expand his purposes for the whole world, even to the ends of the earth. They also didn't seem to understand God's purpose to use his people in extending this kingdom that he wasn't just going to snap his fingers and do it all at once, but rather he was going to build in slow and small ways through this ragtaggy little band of disciples that Jesus had been pouring into, that now the revolution was beginning, the revolution of grace, of radical love and neighborliness. And what we find in this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, his final words, and then his, his ascension and the beginning of the disciples' mission are two themes that I want to unpack with you. First, the identity of the people of God, and secondly, the geography of the people of God. The identity and the geography of God's people. First, the identity of the people of God, and specifically what I'm referring to, is the missionary identity of God's people, his church. You saw those words in verse 8 when Jesus was posed this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus responds, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And then this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. This is the calling that Jesus places upon his people. As he ascends his throne in heaven, his departing commission, as it were, to you and I, if you are in Christ, is that we be witnesses. For the apostles, that meant especially witnesses, eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection talking to people about the reality that Jesus reigns over all, that his lordship is real and true, his grace, his love, his kindness, the forgiveness of sins, all these blessings are extended to people as a gift if we would simply come to him with open arms and bended knee. You will be my witnesses is a commission to mission. It's a calling for his people to, yes, gather, but always to remember that they are a missionary people. Friends, we as a church are called in this neighborhood to have 
and to live out of a missionary identity. One that grows out of, emerges out of, is empowered out of the joy of the gospel. As missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin once put it, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. For those that have encountered Christ as their true neighbor, who've been served and loved by him, who've been surprised by the love of God, your heart explodes with power and energy and motivation to love just as you have been loved. Missionary begins with a kind of explosion of joy. And this is the story of the book of Acts from cover to cover. You see the apostles going even in, in the midst of, in the face of persecution and opposition, being witnesses, sharing the good news of Christ, both in their words and in their deeds, both with what they say, telling people about the love of Christ that they've been changed by and embodying it with deeds of love, healing the sick, befriending the friendless, caring for the vulnerable, setting people free in words and in deeds, serving as Christ's people. Friends, we are called to be a missionary people. And it's important for us to remind ourselves of this because it's easy for the community of faith to begin to adopt sort of a protectionist mindset. Uh, where we huddle together and say the real problem is out there. And we are called to protect ourselves from harmful influences. And of course, on some level, that's not entirely untrue. Christ does tell us to be vigilant before the influences of the world. That we do need to actually cultivate a faith that is quite different from anything else that we can find in this world. A radical way of trusting God. A radical way of loving that's different from any other kind of love we find in this world. And yet, Christ calls us primarily not to see as the, the world as a problem out there, but rather than uh, as an opportunity, as a field, as a, as, a, as a field to plow, as a people to love, as an opportunity by the gospel. Again, as Newbegin puts it, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Which means, even right here, what are we doing? We're coming together to renew our vision of who God is, uh, to receive the grace of assurance of God's love and forgiveness, to be restored in our sense of who we are as renewed people, and then sent back out into the world as God has called us to be his agents of his kingdom, of his love, of his power. Not an enclave, but a people sent out. We're called to be living witnesses in this city. The question is, does that define your identity in the neighborhood and in the different spheres of life that you are called? 
Does this missionary identity shape your sense of why I am even here in Washington, D.C., living in the house that I live in and doing the things that I do? So often, of course, what primarily defines people in Washington, D.C. is their work. And that's not to say that there, that isn't an important attribute that describes who we are. God has called us to be workers in the world. So let's not shun that part. Let's not diminish its value of us as people made in God's image, called to use our gifts and our opportunities, our loves, to serve people around us. Yes, work is important, but as an article that I read earlier this week reminded us, uh, reminded uh, the readers, reminded me in reading it, uh, this, work used to be something about you, not something that defines you. Now we ask someone what they do as soon as we learn their name. But what if what defines you on top of your identity in Christ, if you found your hope and salvation in him, is your calling to be a missionary wherever you go? What if that were a shaping, framing reality to how you see yourself in the mirror, how you wake up in the morning with a set of objectives for the day? You know how we do that. We say, okay, what do I have to do? Who am I called to be? Or when you evaluate your day at the end of the day, how did I do today? We always ask those questions explicitly, sometimes implicitly, subconsciously. What if our mindset was, I am called to be a witness to Christ and his resurrection in my words, in my deeds, in everything that I do? What if that were the question that you pose to yourself on the regular? I think it's an invitation then to a different kind of calculus to what we're trying to do and what we're all about. See, this is why I think it's important for us as we consider ourselves as a, a neighborhood church because then we're starting to ask ourselves questions like, do our neighbors actually notice that we're here? Do our neighbors actually see in us, both individually and corporately together, any difference in the way that we love? Are they experiencing something about the hospitality of God because of the way that we extend kindness to them? But do we also maybe challenge things in them? The challenge of the way that we love. Maybe we love differently. Maybe we love people differently as Christ did, even as we saw last week. The company that Christ kept turned heads, even invited the judgment of other people. He shares meals with sinners. How dare he? However, the world defines sinners and outcasts today. What would it look like? for our neighbors to recognize that we're living according to a different calculus about what's most important in life. What could it look like as the missionary people of God to even sense a calling to serve and to dwell in a neighborhood like this? And what I mean by that is this. Let's talk frankly because of the changes in our city, the demographics, 
the things that have been happening, the, the, the dynamics and the economy of our local area over the last couple of decades, the cost of living has increased, has become harder for many people to live. A lot of you have felt that pinch, whether you've lived here the entire time or if you've looked to rent or purchase in this part of the city. The irony, of course, is that even with the higher cost of living as an urban neighborhood, there still are struggles with crime and safety. There still are challenges that people face economically. There are challenges relationally as the neighborhood becomes more polarized culturally and demographically. And yet there are opportunities as well because of that mix that we can be in mixed economic company as neighbors. People with less and people with more living side by side able to help one another out. A place where people can actually be in true diverse community as we find here in this area. But see, this is what I wanna put before you. If our only calculus is that of how can I best make ends meet how can I best save the most on housing? How can I best only protect myself and my family? And friends, I'm not saying any of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But if it's the only things that we are factoring into our decision-making, would we ever sense that God might call some of us to places where there are challenges of all kinds because we are called to be a missionary people, where we're called actually to absorb the cost of living in a certain way, again, embodying in words and deeds the kingdom of God and doing so collectively as a community, where we are committed to be neighbors because, dear friends, every neighborhood and every community needs gospel people committed to living out the neighbor love of Christ for the sake of whoever the neighbors are there. Somebody's got to do that wonderful privileged work of loving like Christ has loved. Could that be us? Could that be you? Laying down your life, even possibly paying a little bit more literally absorbing the cost of finding schooling that fits your children or friends that are of a familiar background to yours, the challenges of finding your way through life in this city, in this neighborhood, is this something that you might feel called by the love of Christ to say, sign me up, I want to be here too. But we'll only arrive at that conclusion, that answer, with a kingdom calculus and with a calling of the missionary people of God. After all, this is what the gospel is. This is precisely what God has done for us. As the paraphrase in the message, that wonderful translation by Eugene Peterson, puts John 1:14, the word, the Son of God, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He came and moved into the neighborhood, identified with you and me, served and laid down his life for neighbors, even enemies, 
dying for their sins, my sins, your sins, on the cross, loving us to the end. Here is neighborly love. Here is the neighbor who moved in, who drew near, and calls us to do the same. But this passage also reminds us not only the identity, the missionary identity of God's people, but also the geography of God's people. One thing that's interesting about this is how much the passage pays attention to places, to specific locations, as the Bible does everywhere in its pages. You see in verse 8 again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. There's an attentiveness to geography, even in the way that God calls us to be witnesses. He doesn't say just do it, you know, wherever. He says pay attention to where you are in a way that forms who you are, starting with where you're presently located in Jerusalem, then stretching and extending yourselves to other cultural reasons, and even, not just yourself, but as a total people of God, sending one another to the ends of the earth, which is precisely what the map and the story of the book of Acts is laid out to be. We see in verse 11 the reference to the disciples as men of Galilee when the angels speak to them. In verse 12, we're told that the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. Again, so much attention to these little geographical identifiers. Why? Because God cares about where we are and not just who we are. He places us and calls us to particular places to love particular people in a particular area. Again, this is simply the story of the gospel. In Jesus' incarnation, he chose to become an embodied human being in a place. One who was born in a town called Bethlehem, who grew up in a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee, who did ministry in ancient Palestine, far away. As Jen Pollock Michel, wonderful author, put it, incarnation is the death of abstraction. God didn't just love generally, abstractly, he loved particularly. In fact, he became a particular human being. God made himself known through the particular person of Jesus. And as Ashley Hales, a wonderful author and thinker around this topic, put it, if Jesus entered into our world in a specific time, place, and body, then we must recognize that the scandal of particularity is a vehicle for grace. God uses us as we love the people immediately to our right and immediately to our left. Not looking past loving people generally out there, but saying, no, this person right here, in this street corner, on this block, in this neighborhood, these are the ones that I'm called to love and serve. Friends, being a neighborhood church is, is, is uh, to be a community that takes proximity seriously. Understanding that in a fast-moving world, 
And let's face it, in a busy city, proximity is often what can propel us into community, right? It's hard to actually grow closer to people that you never see. And it's hard to see people that you have to schedule out six months in advance. I'm only uh, exaggerating a little bit to travel across a far distance across this city. You know, that long commute to Capitol Hill. Proximity engenders community. It, it makes serendipity possible, bumping into one another on the street, seeing each other in the supermarket, uh, rubbing shoulders almost accidentally. This is neighborhood community. And it fosters a, a special kind of way in which we can rely upon each other. Proverbs 27.10 recognizes this when it says, Better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. There's a different kind of way in which we are called to be surrogate family for one another because we're close and because we're committed to love in a way that almost wonderfully committed and loving family members far away, relatives, would not be able to love and serve us and meet our needs because they're not able to be in face-to-face -face community with us as you and I have the opportunity and privilege to do. Proximity also enables mission. Because we're able to sort of be neighbors with our neighbors and get to know one another as real human beings, grilling in the backyard, frequenting the same parks, going to the same schools, walking the same streets, where we're human beings one to another before we're evangelists, right? Where we're just able to be bearing the similar burdens that we bear as neighbors together and loving each other as friends, opening up avenues for conversations about the things of God, opportunities that you might have over time to actually share about your own faith. Proximity produces opportunity for mission as well. Friends, to be a neighborhood community is an invitation to a different kind of rootedness in a fragmented world. Our lives are so scattered. I feel this, don't you? And we sort of bless it as if it's just normal and we have no other choice around it. Where you live here and you work way over there and some of your friends are over there and your Bible study is back here if you go and you have this and that and we're all over the place and that's just our physical lives and then you get online and you got this friend and that friend and this childhood buddy and this family member and we're scattered. And we wonder why we feel so fragmented. Neighborhood community is a vision, not just for how to do church ministry. It's a vision for how to do life. Pulling the pieces together with just a little bit more coherence to say, no, I want to actually be a little bit more in one place, pulling together my relationships and where I worship and where I serve and what I see as my regular local context day in and day out. I, I want to pull those pieces together in a countercultural way because all the other forces are pulling me in the opposite direction. Because we have all these challenges, don't we? All these challenges to approach where we live and worship simply as consumers. 
right? We have these forces that, that almost beg us just to be a consumer where you go and live in a city for a little bit, extracting meaning and value. Hey, I lived and worked in Washington, D.C., right? Extracting meaning and value from a place and then just moving on. A consumerism. Or there's just the way in which we're pulled into online life, which, of course, is not bad in and of itself, but so often, if you are only seeing your relationships and community as a digital reality, rather than caring about the people right in front of you, what you find is hap happens and is happening in our society is you become disenchanted and discontented with real people, physical places and people, because you're able to hop online and sort of select who you talk to. Uh, you never need to actually meet their actual needs. You just kind of connect for a few minutes and you leave. Uh, where you go online and you become more familiar with virtual communities than with a community on your own block. Where you actually, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a practical problem as well because you spend so much emotional and me mental energy on social media that you have none left for the actual people around you. Challenges extend also to commuter life, already talked about that, and to the restlessness that we constantly live with, especially in this generation. Sometimes the grass isn't always greener on the other side, or at least you don't need to assume so, moving and shuffling from one place to next. You see, Ashley Hales, again, in this really helpful article that she wrote on the importance of place, says this, in countless mundane acts of staying put, we presume upon a narrative of grace that God is already active and present where we are and that we are joyful participants in his kingdom. Do you hear what she's saying, Dr. Hales? What she's saying there is that so often our restlessness makes us say, hey, there's something better out there. Or God must be doing something over there that I need to be a part of. Or, or that I need to be the more perfect version of myself. See, grace teaches you to say God is at work everywhere. Even here. And in the mundane little things. You know, that part of life, daily life that feels boring to you, God is there. So you don't need to go to be on an adventure. You don't need to go to be a missionary. Because God has called you to be the missionary people of God right in this neighborhood in a way that might call you to stay put for a long time, that might make you seem uncool to your peers, but might make you a more faithful servant of God. And that's not to say that to go is unrighteous or it lacking in faith. The question is, are we weighing these things? Are we considering these things? Do we dare to consider the possibility of how deeply our souls need a more anchored life? Come be a part of neighborhood community. Anchored living in the grace of God with a love for place. Again, it's not because this neighborhood is the perfect place or the only place, but it is a unique place. These neighborhoods here being among the most uh, dense population-wise, some of the most racially and economically diverse in our city, some of the most walkable parts of our city, the opportunity for love and community is vast. We love being here, and we hope that you would too. In conclusion, 
we just need to remember that this is not just a sociological call, hey, just come and be here and let's do these things together. Uh, it's a Holy Spirit call. Verse 8 again, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. How is it that we become the missionary people of God? How is it that we can actually lean into our calling of being emplaced people by the power of the Holy Spirit? We need him to change our hearts, to compel our love, to show us a vision of the true neighbor, even Jesus, uh, to be changed by his willingness to draw near even to sinful, selfish people like you and me by his grace, that we might extend that same grace to other neighbors in love. God calls us to be like him, and he gives more of him to be like him. He gives us his Holy Spirit. After all, it's this God who said in Leviticus 26, 11, again, the paraphrase in the message, God's words, I'll set up my residence in your neighborhood. I won't avoid or shun you. I'll stroll through your streets. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. That's the God of the Bible. And that's the kind of people we too are called to be. Let's pray. Jesus, lead us now. And again, this begins in our hearts, we know. We long to be concerned about others, committed to loving others even as we've been loved. Neighbors that are learning to be neighbors like the true neighbor. Change our hearts. Thank you for how you're doing that. Thank you for the testimony of so many people already who've lived like this in our midst. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.